we all want to have safe travel, don't we? And you all need safe travel to glory. And you need safe travel, and you need to be reminded of certain things, and that's what the writer of Hebrews knew. Remember, if we take the teeth out of the argument, then you do yourself a terrible injustice. A warning is given there for a particular reason, so that you will arrive at the destination, uh, what God has called you to do, uh, and you will be there safely. And I want to submit to you that that's the way the warning passages work in the book of Hebrews. There are five of those warning passages. They're not designed as, uh, to show genuineness of faith or genuine faith test, nor are they designed to create doubt uh, that you're going to make it to heaven. Rather, they're warnings so that you will arrive in heaven safely. Now, the anatomy of a warning passage is just like that. But these passages definitely cause us to look at, it, uh, at them and say, Okay, <clears throat> are these believers? Are, there apparent, are they apparent believers? And, of course, we've come to the conclusion after the end of the day that these people looked like Christians, but in fact they were not Christians. I think that is the bulk of the evidence given in the inspired Word of God. Uh, they're not Christians at all. Now, that's my position. <coughs> However, the fact of the matter is, uh, I don't think the Lord wants us to be tied up in the matter of eternal security all the time. Remember, we're supposed to be making progress. If you're continuing in your faith, then that's not going to be a thing that's reoccurring in your mind. Remember, uh, the metaphor in Hebrews 12 is that you run the race. It's not that you're going backwards trying to figure out whether you're saved or not. You're supposed to be moving forward in your Christian life. But we automatically jump to questions when we read texts text like Hebrews 6. Can I lose my salvation? But the warnings are designed to strengthen us. Remember, Hebrews has uh, tons of encouragement and comfort for us as God's people. That Jesus and Him alone is the once for all sacrifice. He's greater. We learned that this morning, right? He's, he's full supremacy. Belongs to Jesus. But at the same time, there are incredibly, uh, uh, there are texts of Scripture, at least those five warnings that are designed to exhort and challenge us to the very core, and all of them are important. It's not to make you become a statistic of someone who thought they were going to heaven, but they ended up not making it. Evidently, in the course of the book of Hebrews, the writer thinks it's very, very important, and God thinks it's important for us to pause long enough along the way to look at the warning signs. Not so that you will freak out and pull over on the side of the road, but that you will take a moment to think about who you are in Christ and think about where you're headed so that if you are born again, of course, if you're in the Lord's house, you're going to persevere, right? It's because you're in the house uh, and Jesus is over the house that you will persevere. It's His grip on you. But it's good for us to be challenged. It's good for us to consider the warning. Now again, chapter 6, let me just read 4 through 6 tonight, and we're going to unpack that for our edification. Y'all ready? We already talked about it this morning, eternal security put to the test, but today I want to really deal with those warnings, or this particular warning, and find out, find out what it means <clears throat> to fall away. Why are they in such a dreadful condition? Why can't they repent when they're in this situation? Y'all want to know that tonight? Yeah, I hope you do. Okay, chapter 6, <coughs> beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. You notice that there's parenthetical. For if it is possible in the case of those who are once enlightened, you can skip down. And have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. In other words, it is impossible, categorically impossible, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, folks, y'all know that in biblical exposition, grammar is incredibly important. And although we all butch the English language a lot, don't we? We're all guilty of that. The fact of the matter is, when it comes to studying the Word of God, the Greek is everything. And here's how it literally reads. It's actually scarier than if you just read it on face value. It really reads this way. It is impossible to renew again to repentance because they re-crucify to themselves the Son of God and because they put Him to open shame. Now, that's pretty scary. Doesn't matter who you are, right? Uh, doesn't matter what your denominational persuasion is. When you read that, it's kind of scary. Now, let's point out something clear in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Notice that the emphasis is on a pronoun, us and we. Y'all see that? Therefore, let us leave the ABCs of the Christian faith. But when you get down to verse 4, for, it is, for if it is possible in the case of... Y'all see the pronoun shift? It goes from us and we to those... There's a reason for that, okay? Because when you get down to verse 9, he's going to say, I'm convinced of better things of you concerning those who belong to Christ and or concerning salvation. So there are, there's the we, the me, the us, but there are the those that the writer is referring to. Again, strengthening, strengthening the argument in the book of Hebrews that these are in fact apparent believers, but not actually Believers. Now, who are, who are those, the those in question? That's something that readily should jump to your mind. Who are the those in question? Uh, how are they described? What is impossible in this passage of Scripture? And what are the reasons for it being impossible, that being repentance? Okay, just two simple things tonight. Can y'all handle that? Two simple things. First, those who fall away are in a dreadful situation. I want everybody to agree with that. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, there are five participles that explain the situation that the people were in, and yet they're going to turn their back and walk away with apostasy from the Lord. Notice this. It says those who have been once enlightened. Now, it's interesting that some of the early church fathers thought this was water baptism. That that was their enlightenment. They had gone that far to make a profession of faith. And they had followed in believers' baptism. And the once enlightened, they thought, was baptism. But the, the text says nothing about water. Does it? I think it's simply that they had received certain illumination whereby they understood the gospel. And I think they have a knowledge and they have some kind of understanding. Same word is used in Hebrews 10.32. And so they've got some kind of knowledge of the truth. Here are people who had an understanding in some form or manner of truth. The second description of their dreadful situation is that they had tasted the heavenly gift. The word means to experience. Sometimes it's in the fullest sense of the word of experiencing. It says of Jesus that he tasted 
death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Folks, that means he fully experienced death. So that word in that connotation is used, the word taste, to mean fully experience it. But sometimes in Hebrews, it's actually used, in other places in the Bible, to mean an attraction or a partial experience. It's hard to, it is hard and impossible to know which way the writer is actually using it in this particular text. But in some degree, they had experienced, according to the writer, the heavenly gift. Early church fathers, again, thought this was communion. Whereas the first one was baptism, the second was communion. Now, I don't think that flies whatsoever. I don't think that's true at all. It would have to refer to the Holy Spirit, who is declared as a gift from heaven that gives salvation. So the idea, in some degree, uh, which is unidentified in the text, right? We can't say, make it say what it doesn't mean, or try to make it mean what it doesn't say. But they've been given some kind of gift from God, which is the Holy Spirit or the gift of salvation. Now the next phrase is they have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned seven distinct times in the book of Hebrews. That means the Holy Spirit of God. So he's the one who speaks. You remember that text in chapter 2? Don't harden your hearts today. He's the one who is speaking. That's the Holy Spirit of God. He's the one who speaks. He is the one who enlightens. He is the one who renews. So the idea of being a partaker of the Holy Spirit is the idea that in participation, some kind of way, they saw the operation of the Holy Spirit of God at work. They saw the benefits of what it means to have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. It's to experience the convicting work, the power of the Holy Spirit and His presence. Maybe even to experience some of the gifts of healings that they actually saw in the Word of God that we read in the book of Acts. So then the writer says, tasted the goodness of God's word. Another participle. This is to experience some type of the power of the word of God. They have heard the word. They've been moved by the word. They've been gripped by the word. You see how dangerous this is? Because there are a lot of people sitting in Baptist churches all the time that have experienced the same thing I'm reading to you. They've heard the word. They've been moved by it. They've been gripped by it. The promises of God have seemed like joy to their souls. And he then links it to the power of the age to come, which is unique. The idea is that they have experienced the already of the kingdom with all its presence and with all its power. Now think back, if I was preaching through Acts, just think about how many of these early Christians saw that complete break with Judaism. They saw that it was, there was no way that the law and all the shadows could save them. It was only Jesus Christ. A lot of those men saw Jesus perform miracles, right? A lot of the people saw the apostles perform miracles. They saw the coming of the age of the kingdom. Personally saw every aspect of that right before their eyes. You, they experienced the Word and the Spirit. And these people in question have actually experienced in some measure the coming age. But when they heard the word, it came to them with power. And notice the description. The passage says, and have fallen away. All five participles linked together with this have fallen away. This is not the word for everyday sin. It is the complete word for apostasy. There is no question that in this sense, we're not talking about some kind of menial sin here. We're talking about apostasy hearing all five of these things in some measure and yet they fall 
away. One author describes it this way. The writer describes the next step in falling away in extremely frightful terms. They've, the readers had not yet taken this step, but they were on the verge of taking this particular step and walking away from the only means of salvation that could save their soul. They were in danger of drifting away. They were in danger of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, throwing away their confidence, shrinking back. Think about all the arguments. They were in danger of hard-hearted disobedience, refusing God and turning away from Him. This is the language given here. They were threatened by spiritual failure, falling short of God's promises. So what is in view here is a willful rejection of Jesus Christ. Now just think about those participles. Having all of those things, chapter 6, again, verse 4. Think about those things. Having been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's a complete repudiation of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And that's what I want you to hear and understand today. These are not just average churchgoers who, who come once a, you know, one time a month, and, or we, we look at them, uh, engage them, and we say, well, they must be in this camp of falling away. We, you know, by the way, don't let this be your gauge of determining where a person is in their faith. You don't have that right by reading Hebrews chapter 6 to, to, to link somebody to this particular passage. But this is not a description of a casual church attender. This is some, not somebody who is formerly has their name written somewhere in membership where there's just this casual contact. Folks, contact. These folks describe people who have experienced the gospel in, in a way that you would not be able to tell whether they're the real thing or not. They're in everything. They've, they've been right with everything. Uh, you remember Acts when Simon the magician is saved? He made a profession of faith and was baptized. And was, what's the best phrase for that? He was lost as a ball in high grass, right? As a goose in a snowstorm. Think about this. Think about Judas. Seemingly, 100%, everything was fine. No one would have known that Judas was the son of perdition. And yet, he was. So the description includes those who have experienced all the ramifications of the gospel that should awaken their heart to, the, to know Jesus. So realize, these people have come in contact with the living God, and yet they have fallen away. That's a dreadful situation to be in. Isn't it? It's a dreadful situation to be in. Now, here's the second thing. Those who fall away cannot be brought back to repentance. The, the amazing amount of contact with the coming of the kingdom of God. And, I, and I, my mind races back to the Jews who saw the complete fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament brought to fruition through who? Jesus Christ. And yet, they appeared, perhaps, to make a profession of faith, come to Christ, and all of a sudden, they're in this dreadful situation of falling back and going back to the law or the shadows for salvation and not the only means of salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they do fall away, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. The state which he has professed and expressed is impossible to be renewed or regained for this particular person. That's the overwhelming weight of this passage. It is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. So these people 
who have experienced these things and have fallen away, it is absolutely, categorically impossible for them to regain repentance. They're in an irremedial state. That's kind of a fearful thing, isn't it? They cannot be renewed again to repentance. It's impossible. He describes this as having happened. It has happened already in some cases, but these people were in danger of it. So he's going to tell the people, tell us the reasons why repentance is impossible. And these are given in the present tense. And here's the first one. They recrucify the Son of God themselves. That's why it's impossible. They're doing this of their own volitional will. Uh, Here is the tragedy of this thing. It ought to make everybody in this room shudder and think about the warning. They're actually the people who, on the surface, have embraced Jesus and the cross, but now they stand against Jesus and the cross. Open apostasy. Uh, Reminds me, in Baptist life, of people who sit in a Baptist church for years and years and years, and then they go out and join the Mormon faith. I can't fathom that. I really can't. Or people, you know, Mormons pray more off Baptist than anybody else. And so do Jehovah Witnesses. You know why? Because we don't know what we believe. And that's unfortunate. You need to know what you believe. So they actually embraced Jesus and the cross, but now they stand against Jesus and the cross. They end up standing with those who crucified Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. Do you recall what took place at the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ? What happened when he was before Pilate? Well, let's say it this way. It was really Pilate before Jesus. Pilate was the one on trial, not Christ. Y'all do realize that, right? It's really Jesus it's really Pilate before Jesus. But do you remember what happened? You know, Pilate says, Shall I release him to you? Speaking of Jesus. And then he says, His blood be on us and our children's children. Now, theologically, his blood covered them. But they're saying, Oh, we'll just take the full ramifications of having him crucified. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Why did they, what, what they did in crucifying the Son of God, they did willingly. And they did not do ignorantly. In this passage before us today, the the heinous thing that they do is not something that they do blindly, folks. They they didn't do it out of ignorance. They did it 100% volitionally from their own will. They claim to know Jesus as Lord, but they are crucifying Him and saying, uh, 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 re-crucifying Him and saying, let His blood be on me and on my children because I repudiate everything I said I believe and I'm walking away from Christ. Folks, those are people who did not know the Lord. Period. It's not a loss of salvation. It's not actual believers who lost their salvation. It's not almost believers. These are people who were apparent but were not saved. These people are doing this with full, let's use this word, culpability. Folks, they had seen everything that transpired in the early stages of the church. One after one, they saw the kingdom of God manifested in their their presence. They saw the power of Jesus Christ to save sinners like me and you. And they claimed to have that full knowledge. But in the end, they didn't. Um, They understood. They tasted. They had experience. And they cannot plead ignorance. The writer says that they cannot be brought back to repentance because they re-crucify Christ and put Him to open shame. That is this. In their rejection of Jesus 
in their repudiation of the gospel of Christ, they're holding Christ out to open shame. Their apostasy is holding the Lord Jesus Christ to open ridicule and contempt among those who were aware of their apostasy. In other words, the rest of the church family saw their apostasy openly. They saw that they once said they were in, but now they're saying, are standing against Jesus. And some people say, well, this is only a hypothetical warning. It's only hypothetical. Folks, what good is a warning if it's a hypothetical situation? Because all you're going to do is sit there and say, I'm safe. I don't have to worry about it. You know, I could say this. You may have a stroke if you can lick your eyebrow with your tongue. All right, now, what's the... I mean, can anybody in here do that? Don't do it in church if you can do it. All right? So you're going to say, well, I'm never going to have a stroke, right? Because I can't lick my eyebrow with my tongue. Now, folks, what good is a warning if it's a hypothetical warning? It's not a warning at all. So the fact of the matter is... Uh, does this describe a true believer? Well, again, we learned that this morning. It does not describe a true believer. And I view this question uh, as you're going down through the exposition. I don't think that's what the writer had first in his mind. He's not wanting you to stop and say, Whew, am I saved or am I lost? Uh, but the fact is, as you go through this road of exposition, you know, we might veer off the pavement a little bit, and we have to stop and ask these questions in our interpretation. Who is he talking about? What kind of sin is this? So let's go off the beaten path for just a moment and remember this is not a dissertation on the doctrine of regeneration. It's not a dissertation on eternal security. It's a pastoral admonition. This, the writer of Hebrews more, more than any other writer in the Bible was like a pastor. And he was saying, okay folks, I'm going to comfort you at times, I'm going to encourage you at times, but ever so often, I'm going to throw the yellow warning sign up to make sure that you're progressing in your faith because if you're turning back, there's a good chance, 1 John 2, that you went out from us because you were not part of us. Had you been of us, you would have continued. So Hebrews, Hebrews is about continuance. So since the question is there, what shall we say? Well, people want to start talking about the Israelites, and they start saying, well, huh. The Israelites were saved, and they rebelled. Well, really? I mean, who in their right mind would think that every one of the Israelites were saved? But I've had people say that. They, they were God's children, right? Well, I would just go ahead and submit to you that some were saved and some were not. Even, even Romans 9 talks about not all of Israel is of Israel. So many of them uh, witnessed the blood on the doorposts. They witnessed the Passover lamb. They witnessed the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. They observed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They observed the manna coming down from heaven. They observed hearing the voice of God coming from Sinai, but their hearts were hardened in unbelief. God's voice at Sinai, all these things are true. Some perished, that perished, were regenerate. Others were not. But there are also real experiences in the book of Acts of people who claim to have salvation but did not have salvation. I mentioned Simon the magician. You'll find that in Acts 8, verse 13 and 20 through 23. You've got Judas Iscariot. You've got the parable of the soils where the word of God falls on certain ground and it springs into life and it quickly goes away. You know, folks, we talked about that this morning, right? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. 
the pig will go back to its waller, and the dog will go back to his vomit. Uh, maybe it was sensual, don't know what it was, but the fact of the matter is, uh, the experience maybe was sensationalism or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, they go back to the nature that they were before. Right? But my contention is, if your nature has been changed by the Father through the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwells you, that will never change. And of course, we've gone over that uh, to we're almost blue in the face. But the deal is this. Why is this impossible? Why is it irremediable for someone to go back into repentance? Because they have committed the unpardonable sin. That's my take on this text. And here's the argument. Matthew 12, which tells us of the unpardonable sin, says that the Pharisees had witnessed, now get, catch this, they had witnessed the divine miracles given straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? All the blessings of the kingdom of God at work right in front of them. And they made a calculated refusal to give to credit the Lord Jesus or God in the flesh with those miracles and wonders, but instead they attribute his works to Satan. Right? Do y'all remember the text? And so the calculated refusal of the Spirit's witness brought their awesome, irremedial damnation. God calls that, or we call that, the unpardonable sin. Does that not fit extremely well with Hebrews chapter 6? Anybody want to wave their hand and, de and deny that? Doesn't that fit almost letter to the law with Hebrews 6? They had been enlightened by their context with Christ's teaching. And folks, when the apostles taught, Jesus taught. Anybody home? Right? When the apostles taught, Jesus was teaching. When they gave the word of God, God was speaking. They had tasted the heavenly gift. By beholding the spiritual blessings of Jesus' ministry, they had been partakers of the work of the Holy Spirit by watching the Holy Spirit heal the crippled man in the book of Acts. They saw all these things. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God, both in the knowledge of the Old Testament and in Christ being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. They had tasted the powers of the age to come, witnessing all these miracles enacted right before their very eyes. And in spite of all of these spiritual blessings... They attributed the work to Satan. And they stand against Christ and the cross where they said they stood with Christ and the cross. Folks, that's nothing short of apostasy. That's what that is. That's not some kind of loss of some kind of covenant blessing in a future millennial kingdom. What kind of warning is that? No, folks, this is a true, real warning. And here's the deal. One statement if you want to hear it. Both in the case of the Pharisees and the apostate Hebrews, the sin is the same. It is man's full rejection of God under the full exposure of the light of the gospel. And when you're under full exposure of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you turn and walk away from that exposure, then you have committed the unpardonable sin. Amen. Right? That's the truth of the Word of God. When you have that kind of exposure, so that amounts to crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. However, all right, remember, that's not the primary meaning of the text. But we, those questions come up out of it. Lord, am I saved? Can I lose my salvation? Uh, what's the nature of the sin if you fall away? Folks, it is repudiation and full rejection 
when you're under full exposure to the light of the gospel. That's called apostasy when you walk away from that. And that's exactly what they were doing in this particular text. And so let's jerk the, let's jerk the car back on the road. All right, we veered off. We veered off the road, but let's jerk it back on the road of interpretation, which was what should drive this particular text. The goal of the text is not to deal with what's a real profession and what's a false profession. Here, it's a caution for every single one of us, even sitting in this church body tonight. It's, it's not a safe thing to do to take the text as a grid to interpret everybody else's salvation experience. And when they miss four days out of church, we're like, eh, apostasy. You know, they've just gone, you know. Are they gone for a couple of weeks? They just drift off and they don't come back. I mean, perhaps that's the case, but you can't use this as a grid. Um, we can't stop and say, well, they're unsavable at this particular point. You know, only God knows if they've committed this particular sin where they walk away after having full exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They say they have it and walk away. So this passage is a warning. It's not a template to gauge everybody's salvation. Now, anyone here ever wandered off into a far country, spiritually speaking, that God brought you home again? Don't look at me so spiritual. Everybody's been down that road. Well, did he bring you home again? Then you're not in this group. You better thank God you're not. Well, we talked about that this morning, right? The fail-safe way to know you're going to be in heaven... It's the fact that Jesus Christ lives to ever intercede for you. The reason you're going to be in heaven is not because you're saved by grace and kept by your performance. The reason you're going to be in heaven is because the Son of God is continuously, constantly, every single waking minute or second is praying for you. His intercessory work. He is able to save those to the uttermost who come unto Him. Why? Because He is ever making intercession. And here's the deal. If anybody has the ear of the Father, the Son of God does. He's sitting right there. At his right hand. So he's ever making. He sees the perfect sacrifice, right? He sees the payment for our sin. He's seated at his right hand. So just put that out of your mind. If you're a born-again believer, those he has saved, he has perfected for all time, right? Hebrews 10, 14. Y'all remember that verse? That's an exciting verse, isn't it? Those he has saved, he has perfected once for all, for all time. So if you are genuinely concerned about this error... It's also a great indication that you've not committed the sin. If you're concerned, and it, it does throw up that warning sign in your mind to safety navigate you on to glory, is the fact that you're continuing in your faith. That you are locked in. Yes, uh, you're going to struggle. Uh, you are going to fail. But you're going to come back to the supremacy of Christ at square one. You're going to come back to the finished work of Jesus. You're going to come back to, it's, it's all about Christ, and it's all about what he's done. And if you want to give the Father the most glory, then you rest in the finished work of his Son. Right? That's what you do as a child of God. At the end of the day, you don't know, and I don't know. It's God's business. Uh, only he knows the condition of a man's heart. Only he knows the condition of a man's heart and mine. What I'm going to do when I read a warning like this is I'm going to say to myself, Burden. This warning passage is for you. It's not for somebody else in the church who hadn't showed up in a couple of weeks. It's for me. You ought to put your name in there too. This warning passage is in there for everybody in this room. 
It's impossible to be in the orbit of the Spirit of God's work and embrace the things of God, at least temporarily, and then turn around and full force reject the full knowledge of the gospel. When you do that, folks, then that's irremedial. Okay? There's no turning from that. So hear me. This is eternal judgment we're dealing with. We're not dealing with loss of reward. We're dealing with it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's what we're dealing with in Hebrews. So it's a big yellow warning sign. Don't fall away. If you do this, the consequences are grave. Oh, Baptist, you're just going to lose a few of those covenant blessings in heaven if you fall away. That's bogus. If you fall away, folks, you're going to find yourself eternally in hell. It's apostasy. That's what's spoken of in this text. The warning is for everyone in this building who professed to know Jesus as Lord. Look, folks, warm fuzzies. That won't guarantee your spot in heaven. No amens? Amen. Yeah, warm fuzzies. That don't cut it. Right? It doesn't. The only thing that does is clinging to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that guarantees you heaven. I want you to know that this passage leads me to greater dependence on my Father to hold me up. And again, the emphasis on the Bible is not you holding on to Him. The emphasis in the Bible is the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all holding you. That's the emphasis in the Word of God. Please allow this big yellow warning sign uh, to drive you into the arms of the Father and say to Him, Father, keep me fast. Keep me. Don't let me go. If this helps you hold fast to Jesus, then the warning passage has fulfilled its reason for giving it to you. If it makes you cling to the Father and the Son, then what an awesome warning, right? Aren't you thankful that God gives you a warning? Aren't you thankful that He stops long enough pastorally in this book for the writer to give all of us this warning? And if you hold fast to Jesus more after this sermon, then the text has accomplished its purpose in your life. And folks, if you don't hold fast to Jesus, the consequences in this text are surely going to be true of you. Right? If we're not holding fast to Jesus, then we don't have a half a hallelujah chance of heaven. Amen? So think about what is created. Think of, just think about all the belief that's enumerated here and seeing the coming of the kingdom of God and seeing all of these things and yet turning away from Jesus and, and standing at opposition to the cross of Christ, just like those who stood with Pilate when they crucified the Son of God. That's exactly what the writer is saying. And then, just remember that you, there's no, no repentance for that kind of situation. Folks, just think about how logical this is. If Jesus Christ is not the only way to heaven, and you're not accepting His finished work on the cross, then you have no chance of heaven anyway. Right? I mean, if you refuse the gospel witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's not a chance of salvation to begin with. Okay? So the title of the sermon, look up there. Back here up there. What's that say? Warning, Warning and explanation. Yeah, three times. The, the sign is given for a reason. It's not to make you stop on the side of the road and be afraid that you're not going to make it through the curve. Wow. I finished in an hour. That's an awesome miracle, isn't it? But the fact is, you know, you've got to think about this, folks. The warning signs are there. Please don't take the teeth out of the warning. Don't, don't think that, hey, those five warnings have nothing to do with me. Yes, they do. Because every one of us had a beginning point with Christ, right? We did. And we pray it was true conversion. 
But nobody knows. Nobody knows. I can't look at you and say, hey, I know for a fact. I see fruit, and we can be an inspector. But the fact of the matter is, Hebrews 6 is not a grid for me to judge anybody's salvation. But it is a warning for burden. It's a warning for you. It's a warning for everybody in here that true, genuine salvation is a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the grace of God in you. And folks, by all means, if you're saved by grace through faith, you are going to continue in your faith. You're not going to stop. You're not going to pull up short. You're not going to abandon the faith. Why? Because those who are saved will persevere. Why? Because God is preserving you. Remember that chain? Those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, in time and space, He called. Those He called, He justified. What's that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. He, he pronounced you innocent, whereas, and you're still guilty. Uh, let me say it this way. He saved you, pronounced you innocent, while you're still a sinner. Isn't that awesome? And then, the Bible says, those he justified, he also... And all those are, grammar students, past tense. He said, well, I'm not going to make it to heaven. Your glorification is already planned by God. I mean, come on, folks. Y'all listening? Right? So look, that's the golden chain of redemption. And I hope you'll rejoice in it. I hope that when you read things like Hebrews 6, you, you think about context, you think about grammar... You think about, hey, what does this really mean, right? And you apply it to your life. And please hear the warning. Don't stop. Uh, make sure you've got your focus on Jesus and his finished work. If you do, you're going to be all right. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, Father, maybe there's some kind of encouragement someone needed. Lord, just having someone say to me this morning that they'd struggle with that almost their whole life growing up in a denomination that taught you could lose it. And Lord, just to hear the testimony of feeling... Uh, Lord, we shall know the truth, and it'll set us free. Lord, just hearing your word, Lord, does so much encouragement to our hearts. And Lord, I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that your grip on me is so much greater than my grip on you. And Lord, I thank you for John 17, that you're praying for us. All the ones the Father had given you will come to you, and you will lose none of them. That is, your disciples and the ones that were saved out of this world. And we thank you so much, Father. And I pray that... This text will not be something that we just read and, and flippantly look at and think, well, I'm, I'm eternal secure and I'm fine. Lord, you give us this so that we see the warning signs, so that we look up and think about our destination and we come back all the time to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We would never want to re-crucify the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Lord, we would never want that testimony to this world because we know what you did for us. Lord, we're, we're going to follow you. And Lord, if you don't take us to heaven, then Lord Jesus, we're just going to be damned. Lord, if you don't take us to glory, Lord Jesus, if you don't forgive my sin, if you don't cancel my debt, then I don't have a chance for heaven. And we're going to rest all of our confidence in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps there's something you want to pray about at the altar. Perhaps there's something that God has impressed upon your heart. You want to talk to the pastor about it, Brother Chris, any of us.